Hello and welcome to Dust Disease Diaries, Real Lives, Real Stories of Asbestos and Beyond. My name is James O'Loughlin. This podcast has been created by the Asbestos and Dust Diseases Research Institute and it's about asbestos and the diseases people can get from asbestos and other dust diseases. But mainly it's about people, people who have been exposed to asbestos in their workplace or home and later, often decades later, gotten asbestos or other dust disease and about the people who have helped them. It's about how people deal with those diseases, which are often very painful, often fatal. What do they do? How are their diseases treated? Are treatments improving? What other support is available to people who have an asbestos or other dust disease? How do people navigate their way through the complexities of dealing with their illness and with the health system? We're going to hear from people who have or have had an asbestos or other dust disease and from people who work in the area, a doctor, a nurse, even a lawyer. And we hope that by hearing their stories, their insight and experience, you'll get a better understanding of what happens when someone gets an asbestos or dust disease, how they're treated and how they deal with it. So why am I hosting this podcast? Well, I'm a radio and TV broadcaster. I've hosted other podcasts, but up until 2020, knew very little about asbestos diseases. That year, however, one of my best friends was diagnosed with mesothelioma. He got it from growing up in one of the 1,000 or so notorious Mr. Fluffy houses in Canberra that in the late 1960s and 1970s were filled with loose fill asbestos insulation. So when my friend James Walner was diagnosed, he realised that whilst most people who get an asbestos disease get it from a workplace and are eligible for financial compensation or support, those who got it from one of those Mr. Fluffy homes weren't eligible for anything. He wanted to change that so that victims and their families were taken care of financially. And in the last year of his life, I helped him run a campaign aimed at convincing the ACT Labor government and the federal Liberal government to cooperate and set up a scheme to financially support asbestos victims from the Mr. Fluffy houses and their families. Long story short, two days before James Walner died in 2021, we succeeded and the scheme was set up. So that explains my interest in this area. One thing I learned from that campaign is how important the sharing of knowledge is. At the start, I knew nothing about asbestos diseases, nothing about campaigning, none of us did, but we learned from talking to campaigners, researchers, doctors, people at the Asbestos and Dust Diseases Research Institute who were extremely helpful and more. Unfortunately, asbestos and other dust diseases are still a huge issue today. Over 4,000 Australians die each year from them. To put that in context, that's nearly four times as many as die in road accidents. People still find asbestos when they renovate their home. There's a rise in silicosis cases amongst tradies who've worked with engineered stone. So in this podcast, we want to make people aware of asbestos and its continuing danger, tell the stories of people who've been involved, and importantly, the stories you'll hear are also about resilience, about support, and about hope. Let's begin. 
G'day, welcome. This podcast has been created by the Asbestos and Dust Diseases Research Institute and is about asbestos diseases, how they're treated and how people deal with them. Our guest today is Sandy Foreman in 2016. Sandy was 58 when she was diagnosed with mesothelioma. Uh, She had a high risk of dying within 18 months. It's now 2023, seven years later. We're going to hear about how Sandy dealt with her diagnosis, how she was successfully treated and how she's going now. G'day, Sandy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So when did you first suspect something might be up and you should go to the doctor? I didn't. I had no symptoms whatsoever. I went to my GP for something completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. I had a little bit of a twinge sensation in my groin that was persistent over a period of weeks and I just got to, and it was keeping me up some nights and I thought oh, I better go and check it out it might be a pulled ligament or something. Yeah. Couldn't think what it was. He suggested we go and do an X-ray, an abdominal X-ray, and he said it could be diverticulitis, could be kidney stone. Anyway, over the I got the the X-ray done. That X-ray just happened to catch the first couple of inches of the bottom of my lungs. And on that, when the x-ray came back, he said, look, everything else looks fine, but there's this little two centimetre lesion on your left lung, which is not a big issue in itself. It could be a bit of scar tissue from an old chest infection, but we'll do another x-ray in three months just to make sure because two centimetres is that line where they want to kind of make sure Mm. everything's okay. I kind of really dismissed it because I thought, yeah, didn't really think there was any reason why it could be anything more more um, worse than that. And then I went back for the X-ray after uh, second X-ray. Almost didn't, to be honest, because I was busy and I just yeah. thought. And right. I just went, oh, I better just get it done. And then I put it to rest, and it had grown to two point two. Right. It was not obviously ten percent. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't massive, but it was still a growth. So he went, okay, there's something going on here. You know, have you been exposed to? Asbestos, dust, I don't smoke, I never have smoked. Were you alarmed at that point? Uh, Even then, no, because he kept reassuring me that, look, it's probably nothing, it's probably nothing, but But. we'll get it checked out anyway. And did you know of any asbestos exposure at that time? No. No, okay. Didn't think that I, I couldn't think of any reason why right. I could have been. So then, no clue. then what happened? He sent me to a respiratory specialist who, again, then sent me for a needle biopsy and then eventually a core biopsy. So it was a period of months going by of mm. different tests and things. And on on the needle biopsy, they went, yeah, it's showing the signs of meso, but we don't. you don't show any of the other symptoms. So it doesn't really make sense. We'd we're going to keep going. And then they did a core biopsy and came back as, yes, it's conclusive. It's mesothelioma. It's malignant. Who told you that? Um, that was by the, that stage, they'd sent me to another specialist at uh, RPA, who was a thoracic It's Royal Prince surgeon. Alfred Royal Hospital Prince in Alfred. Sydney. Yeah, Royal yeah. Prince Alfred Hospital. Um, i trying to remember his name, but anyway, but I'm, but, I'm sure it doesn't matter. But he but told he, you. He basically told me. And, and, and how, how, you know, that must have been a big day for you. Yeah, it was huge. I, it was weird because up until then I'd gone to most of the other appointments on my own. Mm. And um, for some reason that for that appointment to get the results, I asked a girlfriend of mine if she would go with me because I just, I don't know, I just felt like I just want to have somebody there in yeah, case. Yeah, just in case. But I didn't really think that it – I thought it was just going to be, look, yeah, it's fine. It's just something else or something that we can deal with. And to be honest, because it was so small, I thought, well, whatever it is, we're just going to cut it off. Mm. 
yeah. you know, what, what What else would you do? It's it's minimal. I must say, look, sorry, going back a little bit, when they did the second chest X-ray, they then did a – well, the second X-ray, they then did a full chest X-ray and they picked up another little lesion at the right. top of my left lung, which was 0.8, so just under a centimetre. Mm. But again, there was no – I had no shortness of breath, no coughing. I was running with my dogs, going to the gym three times a week, you yeah, know, all wow. the usual. So for the couple of days after they told you you had mesothelioma, mm. what sort of state were you in? Look, to be honest, on the day, because as I say, it was such a shock when he said to me, it is malignant, it is mesothelioma, and I learned really quickly, be careful the questions that you ask because you may not want to hear the answer. And I said, okay, so what does this mean? And he said... Six to eighteen months, mm. and that and I said, I, "What do you mean? What does that? What do you mean?" <laughs> you mean it'll, it'll be gone in six to eighteen months? Is that what you mean? Well, no, no. <laughs> six to eighteen yeah. months. And honestly, I blacked out. I I woke up on the floor. Wow. Yeah. So it was one. It was just such a shock. I mean, it's such a huge thing to digest from assuming you'll be around for another thirty years to being told. You're probably yeah. going to be dead in a year and a half. Yeah. Can you, when you think back to that period, the day or two after finding mm. out, can you, we, do you feel like you're in shock that you came, Absolutely. were trying to come to terms with it or? I, I, I refused to come to terms with denial. it. Denial. I just, I, I completely, I just said no. <laughs> mm. well, by the time I kind of came to and he sat me down and I had a cup of – he gave me a cup of tea and it was absolutely amazing. It was really lovely. And my girlfriend was in shock, as, of course, as well because she didn't know what this this was going to happen. She was in tears yeah. and I was just sitting there saying, no, no, this isn't this isn't, this isn't isn't going to happen. Mm. This isn't going to happen. There's got to be something that we can do. And he said, I can refer you on to some people and we can look at, you know, whether there are some um, – treatments but obviously he couldn't say whether I'd be yeah. eligible what, yeah. what that what that meant so uh, it was at that point actually there in, in that surgery that he put me in touch with Adri and he put me in touch with Jocelyn McLean at Adri and and uh, I think she uh, they gave me a pack with some material in it again as you say I was absolutely a, a blur mm. um, and then I think by the end of that day I'd, I'd spoken to Jocelyn for the first time and they and were, how was that Oh, amazing. It was just – it just gave me a sense that, okay, there is something happening and there is something um, – a sense of control, I guess, mm. of, of something. How did she do that? By referring on, for one thing, to um, – because she said, do you know where you were di- where you're exposed? I said, I haven't a clue. I don't know how this could have happened. She referred me on to some solicitors yeah. to investigate that to see whether I was eligible for a, a claim or – any sort of you know support in that way? Were you? Yes, mm-hmm. took a while, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then because it, it was workplace exposure, it turned out by the time they investigated with the solicitors, they went back from where I where I was born, yeah. every house I lived in, every place I'd worked in, whether there was any known. It's almost like being of, a detective, isn't it? It was Going very much, yeah. Every was, every little place, everything, yeah. and and luckily I had a fairly good recollection of most of them, and and a lot of the places were clearly not didn't have asbestos in them, you know, so there was no – and also the time frame because mesothelioma is something that develops over 20, 30 years. So, yeah. you know, houses that I'd lived in 10 years ago, it wasn't going to be the issue. So, Yeah. So so you said you spoke to Jocelyn and mm. Andrew and I, I, I would imagine that when you get this sort of news, you feel totally alone. 
And it must be comforting just to think, yeah, this is a thing. Other people get it. They're, they exist. You can talk to them. Even that, if it doesn't really change anything objectively, it probably helps emotionally. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 as you say, it, it gave me a sense that, okay, somebody knows what the options are for me. I was still very focused on I need to get – I need to find out what the options are, mm. what I can do. And she she was very good at that as well and said, look, there are trials for different drugs that we can introduce you to, you know, um, oncologists, et cetera, et cetera. So – at that time, it was very general, but it was a sense of, you know, because we didn't know who, what was going to be applicable in my situation. But it was, um, look, you know, there are resources here for you. And, and I think I spoke to her probably, uh, well, I wouldn't say daily, but a number of times over those first few weeks. And you just, called her or she called you? Uh, both. Yeah. Both. She gave me her sort of direct number. And really? then she would, yeah. And That's then, good. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really yeah. good. And it was a sense that she really knew what this was about. And she said, look, we have support groups. We have other people that yeah. we, you know, that we can help. And not only just me, but my family support for them as well because it's so yeah you would have had them. to tell your family right yeah i didn't at that point i didn't actually until you didn't. i didn't tell them until the day before i started chemotherapy how which long was, was that between probably you? around a month or so really did um, they notice you're a bit so who were you living with at the time my partner and yeah. my daughter right and um, how many kids adult you got? daughter i've got two but okay. my son was living over in the u.s right and, and so did they know mum you seem you know a, a little bit Distracted. In hindsight, my daughter said when she knew, she said, I thought there was something going on. Why didn't you tell them? Because it was a lot of other stuff going on at the time right. and there was personal circumstances I with my, my children's father was ill and it was actually – Weirdly, the day that I decided it was only a couple of days after I knew myself and I kind of gathered my thoughts. And I'd also by then had a chance to um, – my girlfriend had got some information about a really good oncologist at Lifehouse and a surgeon and said, we're going to go and see these guys. We're going to go and see – you know, we're going to get an appointment here and do all this. She was setting all of that up. So I kind of went, okay, there's, there's stuff happening here. I'm mm. – you know, I, I didn't want to be saying to my children – I'm going to die. I wanted to be you able to, to say, have a plan. Look, I wanted, we're doing this. Yeah. yeah I've got cancer, got but this is what we're going to do. And this is, you yeah. know, and, and it's, there's, there's something, I don't know that it's positive, but I've got a plan moving yeah. forward. Yeah. I wanted to be able to do that. And I, so I kind of had to wait a little bit for that. Plus I tried to process how I was going to tell them myself. And in the meantime, my children's father um, became very ill. Oh, so the focus really had to be on him, and I thought they were really stressed out about that. So I thought, look, I'm, it's just not the right time. I can't say, oh, and by the way. <laughs> That's pretty, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, a bit heroic of you. No, I don't. Uh, look, I don't. Anyway, I, uh, yeah, I, I would yeah. definitely have told. <laughs> well, look, yeah, if 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 I'd said something first and he'd obviously broken his news yeah. after then, but I, I just... That, that would have been big. It, it would have been huge and yeah. it was it was hard enough for them. And, and it wasn't like I felt as if there was anything that was going to change if they knew. Mm, understand. So when you did tell them the day before you started chemo, mm. chemo how did they react, oh, your partner, your kids? Uh, I told my partner first. Mm. I told him the night before and said, I haven't told the kids you, you know, I'm not to say anything. And again, the, on that weekend, which was I think it was on the Saturday when I told him, his father also passed away. Oh wow! So it was a really, really rough time. I mean, there was, and I actually because I told him, and then the next day I went out, and I, when I came home, he was in tears, and I assumed it was 
you know, because of what I told him. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> Oh it was just, it was just, it was, you couldn't write a script. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was just, and I was saying, oh, darling, it's going to be fine. And he's going, no, dad's just died. And I went, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> and which gosh. was fairly sudden as well. He was in, in, in a nursing home, it's kind of the care, but mm. that, it was just a sudden thing. So, again, it, you know, the focus was kind of on a whole lot of things. And then when I told the kids, I sat them down together, I'd said, this is what it is. Yeah. This is what the plan is. I'm seeing this. I'm starting chemo on Monday. I'm eligible for these treatments. Um, so so you, yeah. started, you started chemo uh, in, I think, September of 2016. Yes, I think it was around then. And then you had the operation in March of the following year, so six months later. Yes. When did they start telling you about the operation and how did you go through the process of deciding whether or not to have it? Um, They told me about the operation at the very beginning. Mm. As soon as I went to see the oncologist and they they put you on the chemo first for a period of time and if the cancer responds to that and it doesn't grow, that's the key thing. If it reduces, fantastic, but the key is if it doesn't grow, then you can look at the operation as an option. The other things, obviously, is you've got to be relatively young, even though mesothelioma tends to be a, an older person's um, yeah. cancer. So, so your, your age at the time, 58, is actually considered very... Considered young. Yeah. yeah, it was considered young That's because of the lag time. You get If people, someone Correct. gets exposed at 30, they might get the disease at 75 yeah, or 85. Exactly. Yeah. And so, And also I was pretty fit. Yep. And healthy, otherwise, I didn't have any other medical issues at all. And they said, "Well, in that situation, if the if the if you respond well to the chemo, then we can do this operation, which is called an EPP." Again, I had my girlfriend come along to the meetings with the mm. surgeon for that, and because that was a bit, you know, mind-boggling about how they're going to remove your lung yeah. and everything. And I'm sort of like, "Okay, how does that? <laughs> what's that? What's your quality of life looking like?" Well, we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, after that. But, but yeah, obviously something you want to know about. Did, you, did they tell you there is a chance of dying in the operation? Oh, absolutely. Did they put a number on it? No, I wouldn't say a number on it. But at the same time, in my head, I'm like, hey, if I don't, if yeah. I don't do this, right. <laughs> it's, it's an easy decision. And I didn't have any hesitation at all. It was really? like, yeah, it was definitely, I'm going to do this. Um the only thing I did do in the in the meantime, because my son by then had moved back to the US and he was working in Houston and there was a specialist in Houston called Dr. Sugarbaker who was one of the pioneers in treatment for mesothelioma and I was my son was going went back to the US because he was getting married. So I had to I was gonna go over there and for the wedding. So uh, we actually put off my operation until March. It was meant to be just before Christmas, but my son was getting married in early February. So my surgeon said, you're not having this operation until you've gone to the wedding. So we'll do it when you get back. So when I went over to the US for his wedding, I also managed to get an appointment to see this other doctor to get a second opinion. Not that I ever doubted my surgeon here, but I knew that they had other treatments over there that we didn't have here. And I thought, look, I just want to see but he was absolutely on the same page okay. as here. It was a question of, well, do I want to do this in the US or do I want to do it here? It didn't really make sense. So, so in the couple of days leading up to the operation, mm-hmm. were you terrified? No, not no, at all. I just, want, I just want to get it done. Yeah. The whole time, the minute they told me... You didn't me, say goodbye to anyone in case I don't make it? No, 
No, in fact, actually, my daughter was quite upset with me because on the day we had to be in at at RPA at something like six or seven o'clock in the morning. Mm. And I walk in and I sort of booked in and registered. And then when they called my name and and they said, yep, they took you into the pre-op area to get prepped. I went, yep, okay, see you later. (laughs) And my daughter's like, mum, you know. At least a hug. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And she and I hadn't really occurred to me. I just thought, I'm going to be fine. Let's just yeah. get this done. I'll see you in the on the well, other side. you're right. Okay, so you have the operation and it's successful. They remove one of your lungs yes. and various other bits, bits and pieces. pieces diaphragm, di- yep. piece of a, a rib, yeah. uh, lining of the heart, lining of the chest wall. How long were you in hospital for after ten, the operation? Ten days. Ten days. Yep. And how did you feel in that time? Oh, like a truck had hit me. Yeah. I mean, I I vaguely remember one of the nurses saying something to me like, I'm I'm just going to give you a little roll. And apparently my daughter told me afterwards everyone was in hysterics because I said, I'll have ham, please. (laughs) 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 But apart from that, look, once I was back up in the ward. Yes. It was just like within a, a day or two, I was. They were. They were obviously encouraging you to get up, move around as much as possible, sit in a chair, not in a mm. bed, get a, walk around, go to the bathroom. I just wanted give me a job. Um, I'm. I, that's. You I'm very focused on. Yeah. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What, and what did you task. need to do? Get up and move around. You oh. know, a, as much as possible. Obviously, you know, usual things. Eat. Go to the loo, poop, mm, mm. <laughs> all the things they want you to do in hospitals that they know everything's working properly. But, um, but as, yeah, as you, physio was the big thing. Physio? Yeah. I'm, I'm, in what yeah. way? What sort of physio? Um, just being able to get used to the idea that I now only have one lung. So I only how have did that affect capacity. you? Yeah. Uh, initially, everything was exhausting. Everything, yeah. I mean. Just walking, walking down the street. It was, yeah, I was, I was puffing, you know, mm. just, well, just to walk to the bathroom at that time, obviously, because I'm still in hospital. I was on morphine-based painkillers. Everything was a blur. So it's not just, I felt woozy all the time, mm. dizzy all the time. You know, sit down and stand up would take me minutes to kind of... And did that go on for weeks or days? Or? Uh, look, to be honest, it probably went on for months. Um, really? But to a lesser degree. It got gradually and gradually worse. Um, worse? Uh, sorry, better, yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> um, even even now, I have, I've, I'm just, I've just learnt how to not... Some things I, I just don't do quickly, you know. So, so tell us over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, mm. how you learnt to manage with one lung. Mm. What, what's different? What can when you still do? What can't you do? Uh, Look, luckily, I could pretty much do everything I could do before, but again, I just do it slightly differently. I just manage my expectations, as they say. Um, Give me an over, example. Well, I've gone back. I've been skiing. Oh, wow. I've travelled overseas several times. I've been back to the US and other places and Fiji and wherever yep. else. Can you, can you run? I can do a jog for about 50 metres and then mm. I'm gasping but yeah. it doesn't scare me anymore i know right, yes. that's the thing it's it a lot of it is uh, i've also saw a psychologist for probably the best part of the first year and a year and a half regularly every couple of weeks for a long time i couldn't drive i completely lost all my confidence initially of being independent in any yes. way i was terrified to leave the house at one point because i was kept thinking but what if i Get somewhere where mm. all I've got to walk upstairs or up a hill and I can't do it. What do I do? What do mm. I do? I was in that panic mode. So we're seeing a psychologist about helping you overcome those fears. Yes, and also preparing and saying, okay, so you have a plan. 
You know, you've got a mobile phone with you. So if you feel out of breath, sit down. Don't worry about falling over. Just sit down. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're in the mm. middle of the street, just sit down. Mm. It's fine. Eating was Maybe enough. not in the middle of the street, but well, it, it, yeah, at either just, end. It yeah. Was, yeah. Or, or, you know, you, you sit on a, on a, on a, um, a wall at the front of yeah. somebody's house if you need to. Yeah. Don't just struggle with it and push through. You know, just go, okay, I'm out of breath. I need to take a minute. So it sounds like I'm no psychologist, but it was about – Coming to terms with the things you'd assumed you could do all your life. Yes. Some of them now you, you couldn't. And and we've all got a limit. Like I, I, I get out of breath when I run too, but it takes <laughs> a bit longer than 50 metres. Yeah. But, but we all get to that point. You, you now get to it quicker. It's yes. learning to accept yourself as that, I guess. Was I, that absolutely. kind of what it was about? And it's exactly that. It's like, you know, as you get older, you, you, you have those limitations. I mean, I, I didn't have any symptoms Pre four, so what I was recovering from was the treatment more from than anything else. If you know what I mean, yeah, I was yeah, recovering yeah. from the operation yeah. and the chemotherapy, and the radiation was the worst bit. We didn't even get to that yet. The, the The operation, in comparison, was pretty easy because it was okay. It's gone. It's taken out. In my mind, it's like it's done. Um, it this thing is gone now. I can just move on with my life and start getting better. So I. I understand you had about 30 rounds of radiation yes. therapy, and that often makes people feel absolutely awful afterwards. What, what, if, if it was gone, why were you having the radiation? Because that's what they do. If you're going to be eligible for this, what they call a trimodal treatment, the chemotherapy is the first step. They, yeah. That checks whether you're actually eligible to even have the operation. If you get through that stage, and you can, you have the operation, and then they do the radiation to do what they call mopping up. Because with mesothelioma, there could be cells that have come in contact with other parts in the thorax. Mm. And so the radiation is there to basically kind of zap anything that could have got left behind or missed that's so small that they couldn't pick it up with the surgery. So in that recovery phrase, post-operation, including the radiation, what you spoke about the support from the psychologist and physio, what other support was available, particularly through Adri? Yeah, well, again, I mean, it was it was constant through Adri. I mean, by that stage, by the time I'd, I'd gone through all the treatment, I was, I was just basically in touch with Jocelyn on a weekly basis. We have our EPP meetings about every couple EPP? of months. Uh, extra pleuropneumonectomy, which is the oh. operation. So patients and... Oh, I um, think so you speak to other people who've had oh, the, how yes. are you going and... Yeah, well, I we did would, this, what did you do, yeah, that sort of stuff. we would meet up. Uh, it took a long while for me to do that. Initially, Jocelyn offered, you know, that there were, had other support groups as well for people that had meso but maybe didn't have treatment. I didn't really want to do that because I couldn't – my mental state wasn't good enough to to – meet other people that maybe didn't have the opportunity that I yep. had with. And, and if they weren't doing well, I didn't want to see. That sounds callous, but I, de- I didn't need that in my head. Yep. I needed to focus on the positive. I need to focus on, okay, I've had the benefit of this operation. I need to now just move forward and yes. do what I need to do to get better. But eventually I was quite happy to go along and I really loved the EPP meetings. We mm. still have them and I'll forever go. And um, What do you love about them? Again, it, look, it, we have fun. It's it's funny. We we share stories. We laugh about the ridiculous things that happen. You know, for, for example, when I uh, was recovering after I'd had all the treatment, I was home one day on my own. It was hot. It was summer. And I thought, we've got a pool in the backyard. And I thought it'd be good exercise for me to go and have a swim. 
I, I didn't realise at that point, though, and there was nobody home with me, that when you only have one lung, you don't float. Oh, so, really? Well, you... Because there's I, less, less air in you. Well, yeah, particularly on oxygen. one side. So I got in my oh, pool. Wow. Luckily, it was not that deep and I could stand up. I got in the pool and started to do breaststroke and I literally turned on my side and sank like a turtle. Wow. And I sort of went, was scrambling around, <laughs> going, what is, what is going on? Mm. And grabbed the side of the pool and went, okay, there's no air in that side. <laughs> That's why it basically all fills up with gunk, gelatinous. So you've got weight on that side and air on this side. And so we'd laugh about things like that or people (laughs) would say, you know, things that happened to them that they realised that, you know, or whether it was, you know, walking upstairs or or things like that. So it kind of, I don't know, made a... um, uh, a different aspect to this well, new imagine, body that we've got. That yeah. I can imagine you could talk to people who'd been through something similar yeah. in a way you couldn't talk to even those closest to you. Yes. Yeah. And we talk about what we were going to do, what we were going to do next. One of the things that's really, really good about those meetings and say the other things that Adri do is focusing on the future. You've gone through this horrendous thing, and to be honest, it probably took two years before I got to a point where I was felt normal, even though you know physically I'm different, but in my head I felt normal and said, okay, what do I want to get back to doing? And, yeah. and so I feel like me again, and I had my little list, and that's one of the things that we do at the EPP is a lot of the guys, they travel, you know, they'll go on road trips, they get a caravan, they go and drive around the country or whatever. So you you really make a focus on doing positive things and so that you feel like you, you know. And for me, it was skiing. I, yeah. I really needed to know, can it's I ever vigorous skiing. go skiing? Well, yeah, but I, I was more scared of the altitude because I thought the yeah, cold right. air, you know, thin air, I thought, oh, I'm going to be just Were you okay? straining. Look, I kind of geared myself up to it and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would mm. be. The skiing bit was fine. Once I got on a chairlift and I went up the top and I got on and I'm like, okay, going downhill is easy. Yeah. You know, it was just same old, same old. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, so it's seven years now since mm. you were diagnosed. Well, yes, yeah, six and a half. It's six not, and a half. not preempted too okay. much. <laughs> Do you have regular checks? Does it worry you that it might come back? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I do rem- – I have a CT scan every six months. I'm actually mm. going on Monday. Okay. I've got my regular CT. And, and look, this time my headspace is pretty good. But all of us express the same thing. And this is another thing, good thing about when you meet up with other people because the fears that you have, you think it's just me. But then you talk to others that have gone through it and they go, oh, no, no, I still get that. Yeah, of course. So the, the week before you go and have a CT scan, your head plays silly buggers with you because you're just kind of like, oh, that's a twinge that I didn't have before and – you know, because most people do have, you know, aches yeah. and pains and soreness and you go, oh, I didn't have that a couple of months ago. Is that something happening? Is it coming back? The reality is we're not cured. I'm not cured. There is no cure for mesothelioma. Remission, so, no, no remission. Oh, right. So it's, 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 it's a part of you. It's, it's a part of me. And as yet, it hasn't come back in that yes. there's not showing any sign of it coming back on my right lung because obviously that's the only one I've got left or in other area of my body. But I remember one time going to a, a seminar that Adri organised and one of the surgeons, very, very well-known surgeon, is retired now, and somebody in the audience actually asked him, after I've had my operation and blah, 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 at what point am I in remission? And he said, oh, no, there's no remission. It'll get you in the end. It's just when, not if. Wow. 
And I, re- I was sitting there in the audience and I went, okay, this is one of those sessions I think I wish I hadn't come Usually, to. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. you kind of go, as I say, you kind of go, be careful the questions that you ask. Be careful of the internet too, I would imagine. Absolutely. Like, you know, obviously, you can find out a lot and it's a great resource, but you can also scare the crap oh, out of yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Horus. And I don't, do, I don't do that for that reason because I don't need that in my head. I don't need to worry about yeah. what's going to happen in the future if I can't control it. All I can do is deal with what I've got now. And I'm a really, really, really lucky person because there's not many people that get to six years. Yeah. And after the, even after the treatment – and there's many that have had the treatment and had all the EPP and still it reoccurs and it comes back and, you know, so, that's So, it. Sandy, we've talked about how it changed you physically, one, mm. one lung, how it particularly in the year or so after changed you psychologically and having to overcome various fears. How has it changed or has it changed your attitude to, to life? Has it changed you in any way that, you know, perhaps might be positive? Um. Or not? I'm I'm probably a little uh, more indulgent. <laughs> yeah, good. More chocolate. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, actually, no. That not in that way, but more about my time. Yes, I suppose time is precious. I have to, and I have to make time for the things that I know are going to make me feel good. Like, for example, I can't sit down for too long. I can't sit in front of a computer for too long because I get sore. Right. I get tight and stiff and sore. And I ha- I have a myofascial massage. I'm having it this afternoon, and on the other week I have I go and see a physio, and I'll do that probably for the rest of my life, and that's an indulgence for me, because I wouldn't normally focus that much on myself, if you know what I mean. I just kind of go, oh, I just, but that that sets me up for the weekend if I have that session where I I don't feel uncomfortable, you know, yeah, for as long, and that means I can do other things and I can garden and whatever. I try and do as much walking as I can. I've got two dogs and uh, walking is a really, really big thing. And and I think the positive, you know, mental attitude is a big thing. I mean, some people have a natural tendency to that. I think I do anyway. But you have to kind of really focus on those those things and doing things that you love. I like doing creative things. I'm, you know, as you know, a makeup artist. So I don't do much of that these days, although I do an odd odd job here and then. But yeah, I allow myself to do the things I really like to do. When it comes to eating, I'm I'm more focused on no, I need to eat good food. I don't yeah. drink because they're the things that are going to keep me healthy and good. fit for as long as possible. And that's that's not difficult for me because that's my habit anyway. Well, I won't keep you s- sitting uh, no, much longer. Right. Just... I just I just get up and stretch and move around yeah. a bit. <laughs> One more question. Uh, if there's someone listening who's recently been diagnosed with mesothelioma, all the options are on the table, what advice would you have for them? Just keep asking questions and really, yeah, look at all the options. As I say, I can't emphasise enough. I know I know that I'm the exception and not the rule. Most people that have even had this treatment to be honest, haven't come out of it as well as I have. I mean, some have, but the majority still have some pain or whatever it, that they have to manage. I'm really lucky. I don't take any medications. I don't have any pain. I can't think of anything I can't do that I could have done previously. For me, it was a no-brainer, but I think you've got to just really, yeah, it's it's such a personal thing. I know people have said I'd rather not deal with the recovery and I'd rather just you know, go on a trial drug and hope that that, you know, gives me, you know, as long a life as possible. But also don't, I would say don't be scared of going through the treatment because it passes. Yeah, you right. You know, the, 
the recovery is just like, okay, next week you'll feel a little bit better or next month. And when I look back on it now, I go, yeah, okay, it was a good chunk, you know, probably 18 months or two years before I felt like I was back to normal. But as you say, six and a half years from diagnosis, I've now met my two grandchildren who weren't born yes. <laughs> at that point. All of those things that I, I wouldn't have been able to do. I'm oh, that's another thing. I'm doing my third city to surf. Next, really? This in August? Yeah, I with did one it, lung. With one lung, I've done, I did it at uh, two years. Was the first one. Wow. How um, much do you run? I don't run it. I walk you walk it. it. Yeah, of course. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do a little bit of a jog every now and then, but yeah. generally I walk it. But look, I'm happy with that. And that's the thing. I think you have to accept. I'm not going to say, oh, you know, I'm going to beat myself up because I can't run it. I'm walking it. And that's that's probably doing me as much good uh, physically anyway as it would running. But it's certainly doing me a lot of good mentally just to say that's something I can do. Hmm. And I didn't do it before I had my diagnosis. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling us your story, Sandy. Thank you, James. It's a uh, pleasure. <laughs> our guest has been Sandy Foreman. Thanks to producer Rod Murray at Sydney Podcast Studios. If you want more information, please go to the website of the Asbestos and Dust Diseases Research Institute, ADRI, www.adri.org.au.